Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. With me is that ever-loyal hound, Jeff Goad. <laughs> arf, arf. And I am your co-host, Hoy. Uh, this week, we are very excited to have with us as our special guest, Lucas Zellers, founder of Scintilla Studios, host of Making a Monster podcast, prolific designer on DMs Guild, and creator of the upcoming Book of Extinction. Hello, Lucas. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's awesome having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. So, Lucas, we always like to ask the secret origins of our guests. So, how did you get into role-playing games? Ah, uh, yes, my secret origin, uh, the the time I started playing role-playing games. It was uh, 2015, um, and I think I have Acquisitions, Inc. to blame for it. Uh, mm, that was okay. when I started my first Dungeons & Dragons game in the tail end of 4th edition, and uh, it was one of those... It was one of those we we thought it was going to be a bridge too far. Like I thought, man, I'm I'm a nerd, but I'm not that kind of nerd. And then uh, I played the game, and I did not look back. I think I think I had been looking for something like Dungeons and Dragons my entire adult life, but uh, I I caught the fever and I caught it hard. And by 2018, I was writing for the game. Um, by this by 2021, it's pretty much my part time job. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've never looked back. So you've just mentioned being, uh, you know, uh, died in the wool nerd, but that was a step too far at that point. So what were the things that you were nerdy about? Science fiction, fantasy? What were things that, you know, sort of got you there? Yeah, I think I have my dad to... No, I know this. I have my dad to thank for this. Uh, he had bookshelves full of the golden age of science fiction. Um, Omni Magazine, he had just... Uh, a whole shelf full of the back issues of Omni Magazine, which was out of print for decades by the time I found it. Uh, but it was, oh gosh, and now I'm trying to think of all of the authors that I read growing up and are not. Uh, Sheckley. <laughs> bunch of yeah. yeah. Robert Sheckley. Bunch of, yeah. Zelazny. Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah, yeah. And so you got to actually see them in, the, you actually read them in the magazines or his book or in paperbacks? Both. Like you actually went Both, to the, actually. Well, yeah. So, so magazines is almost, um, it makes you almost sort of a, a sort of a weird hyper throwback because they're so hard to find the magazines now <laughs> these days. <laughs> yeah. So was he encouraging this? It was just something that was just sitting there on the shelf, just kind of like an object while you were a kid. And then suddenly you sort of dug in. I think they were just to hand. Um, mm-hmm. Like my dad was extremely well read uh, and he read broadly and he read a lot. Um, so I, uh, I worked my way through his bookshelf and I would, uh, I would say, Hey dad, um, what do you think I should read next? And he would give me a copy of Watership Down. Uh, and mm-hmm. I'd say, hey, Dad, what should I read next? And he would give me a copy of, um, oh, gosh, I can see all the covers and none of the names. Uh, but, you know, and I just and then I, I went through my dad's bookshelf until I ran out of books. And then I just kept mm-hmm. going in that same vein, reading, uh, reading a lot of fantasy, reading science fiction. It's hard to say dyed in the wool nerd or, or or geek without recognizing that at some point within the last 20 years, um, and I would art, I, I think it might have been 2001 when uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings came out. We we became mainstream and, uh, right. you know, the, the label nerd became less and less useful. But that's a different podcast, probably. <laughs> well, it's actually an interesting discussion because um, 
part of our stuff is sort of archaeological, this this uh, podcast looking back into oh, yeah. you know, the origins of Dungeons and Dragons. And so there is that transition point where it's mainstream and it's actually caused some distress for people who've been around a lot longer because this thing that they was that that was so much theirs personally yeah. um, is now, you know, mainstream culture. Yeah. They loved the thing when it was hard to love. And here we are getting it for free. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, conundrum for for people like that. And for us, I think to a certain extent. But the gaming wasn't really, or maybe it was on your radar, but you said, no, that's maybe not, didn't fit your sort of self-image yet at, until relatively recently. Yeah, I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a, a gamer. Um, you know, I was, a, I was a reader and a lover of science fiction and fantasy. Oh, um, Terry Pratchett. That sure. was a, you know, um, that was the 90s for me. Um, and then, yeah, I didn't, I didn't discover tabletop games until 2015. Um, Mm. you know, after, after college. And, uh, um, yeah, I, I've only been doing it for six years, which is a long time, but I've only been doing it for six years. And, mm. uh, I, I haven't really found anything else that I could, that I could hit as hard as Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop role-playing games. Right. Every creative pursuit has a home in Dungeons and Dragons. If you write, of course, if you are, uh, a statistician and a tactician, uh, of course, it's there for you. If you make right, things, visual artist, you're, of course, yeah. you're an artist. Yeah. It's all, yeah. and I. So I found this immense. I found this thing that could bring together every little bit and piece of creative energy that I had been putting out, and introduce me to this bizarre cross section of humanity that had been uh, doing the same thing. Um, and we we all had something in common suddenly. So yeah, twenty six, right. twenty fifteen, and then. Henceforth, Onwards, right now it looks like the bulk of your released work, at least, is in the Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition. Yeah, um, is that uh, because it's first and foremost the thing that you most love? Is it commercial? Is it a, a bit of both? I mean, are there other things that you're dying to work on that are you know not in the Fifth Edition, you know, sort of realm? Fifth Edition was what was selling. Uh, fifth Edition was when. Dungeons and Dragons gave us, or rather Wizards of the Coast gave us the system reference document. So a tiny piece of the the core rules, everything that makes D&D work, they just gave that to, uh, to the world. And that spawned this incredible ecosystem of third-party independent publishers for Dungeons and Dragons. So I, I came into fifth edition as a designer and a writer, not because uh, I really wanted to be in fifth edition, but because that was the space for uh for people like me at the time and uh mm -hmm. there are sense. plenty of other game systems that i've that i've loved that i've played and enjoyed and would love to write for apocalypse world being one of them uh but fifth edition is a, a cultural juggernaut um for sure. you guys probably know this uh you know it, i with making a monster i tried to cover game systems other than Dungeons and Dragons, partly because I wanted to provide diversity of perspective, uh, and also because I wanted to avoid the uh, successes in number between 1 and 20, and I hit or don't sort of rhythm of storytelling. I wanted to find some other ways of doing that. And uh, the Dungeons and Dragons episode do better uh, by about 40%. Uh, so people, they know, people know D&D, it's really accessible for people. Fifth edition was a really streamlined, elegant system that dispensed with a lot of the sort of arcane stuff that made earlier editions difficult to access and write for. So um, 
for all of those reasons, I ended up pretty much writing ex- writing pretty much exclusively for that system. Now, have you gotten feedback from your, um, since you mentioned the fifth edition episodes do better, have you gotten feedback from your listener base saying, hey, wow, I'm a fifth edition, fifth edition player and the thing that you were trying to accomplish by bringing in these designers of different systems and like, but you've really opened my eyes. I really want to try this game or that game now. Is that, has that been something that's uh, you know, working out for you in that regard. Yeah, insofar as I get feedback from my listener base, um, uh, they do. Yeah, they do recognize that that's a part of the DNA of the show, and it's it's often a really great opportunity for them as well because uh, it's really low commitment. I'm not asking them to to jump into a four hour actual play with a podcast, right. but if I can summarize one piece of a game in about thirty minutes, one monster at a time, uh, it's a very easy way for people to get to say, "Oh, yeah, this." This is a different way of doing it. I might like to try this. Uh, and thank you for sparing me the <laughs> sparing me the effort of finding it and trying to parse whether it's good or not. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Perfect. And before we start chatting about the book that we're here to talk about, I'm curious, do you have any books that you would recommend that our listeners check out for inspiration for their gaming? Uh, I have two. Um, well, one and a bit. Uh, the first is Natural History of Dragons by Marie Brennan. Uh, this is a four-part series uh, of of fantasy novels that are set in roughly the time period that we're going to be discussing today. Sort of a an alternate England of the eighteen of the nineteenth, late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Uh, it is focused on female protagonists uh, who have you know, and, and they talk a lot about gender roles, and especially in sort of the Victorian era England. And uh, the era of the gentleman explorer, uh, the, uh, you know, gentleman being as much an important part of that idea as explorer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, you know, it's, it's sort of, it brings in the development of natural history as a science, as a pastime, um, kind of introduces people to how the, the study of natural history sort of ballooned in the 18 and, 18 and 1900s. Um, so yeah, so natural history of dragons by Marie Brennan. And, uh, that one I think is the better recommendation of the two, because my second is my cheat, uh, any Dresden files novel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I discovered stormfront in summer 28, summer 2017. And I read almost nothing else for about a year. (laughs) Perfect. So, so I guess that's a big uh, jump to what we're reading today, which uh, this week we're reading William Hope Hodgson's The House on the Borderland. And uh, Lucas, what copy or edition are you working with today? My reading habits changed drastically when I discovered audiobooks. I read almost nothing for a very long time, uh, you know, when all of my free time evaporated as I became an adult. And then I discovered you could just wash dishes and read books. So... Um, yeah, so I'm working off the audiobook copy. I did cheat and uh, find some of the ebooks to compare. So, uh, and as as you'll notice with a lot of these older books, um, the edition is like at, at this point in it being in the public domain, the edition is really hard to track down. Like I couldn't tell For you sure. that it's this printing or this publisher. I don't even know who recorded the copy that I read or that I listened through. There you go, Jeff. And Jeff, you also listened to an audiobook in addition to reading the text this week, right? I did. So I was working with some kind of a janky ebook that was some version of the Gutenberg Project <clears throat> yes. ebook. But I was also listening to the um, 
Horror Babbles, Horror Babbles, The House on the Borderland uh, YouTube audiobook, which is narrated by Ian Gordon. And it was a fantastic audiobook, great narration. So what I like to do is I like to listen to it while I also read along so I can kind of highlight as I go. Yeah. But also, sometimes I've, I'm, I'm reading so much with everything I'm doing in my life right now that if my mind wanders a little bit, having both happening at the same time kind of helps keep me on pace and on target for getting through the book. There you go. Um, this week I was started with the Nightshade ebook um, on the Kindle, but I was really annoyed by the typography, the electronic typography. So I switched to another public domain copy from um, Standard eBooks, which is takes a lot of the books from Gutenberg, but cleans them up, does new typography specifically to be read on, you know, Kindle or iPad. Uh, there's a ton of great fantasy books on there. So standardebooks.org is the uh, edition that I was reading from. So um, before we go talk about the book as book, uh, we like to usually pick a Hygaxian word, a word that is uh, sort of weird and pompous or unusual from the text. Lucas, do you have a candidate in there? Uh, yeah, ether. Ether, okay. And only because... Uh, it, not that it itself is bizarre or unusual, but because in the way it was used, I believe it. I, I was listening at that time, so I couldn't tell if it was spelled with the A or not. Uh, but the way it was used was to refer to aether theory or the stuff of which space was supposed to be made before we realized what a vacuum was. Uh, so it's really interesting to me that in this, like in this predecessor of the cosmic horror genre we were still talking about a, a version of or a conception of the cosmos that's much much kinder um the the way it was conceived of in ether theory mm -hmm. and it's interesting because this book is literally a dividing line between traditional gothic and cosmic horror and i think it was about three years or two years after einstein's uh, theory of special relativity that it came out so this is like boom like a whole yeah. uh, you know the cosmos has been rearranged and well just, boy, like you said in our patron book club like this book is the book on the borderland exactly between those. <laughs> yeah. um and we had a lot of great candidates from uh our book club as to word of the week but i'm going to go with kalpas which is from uh, hindu mythology it's a indefinite period of time a kalpa Actually, it's potently 4.32 billion years. Uh, so, <laughs> Sorry, what? Kalpas, uh, uh, K-A-L-P-A-S. So, but it's, how um, did they come to that number? I, I don't know. It's um, But they subdivide all these calendars and, and you know, the he Hindu um, uh, universe, you know, it sort of repeats itself. And so he's using this, uh, the narratives in the term when you're doing that time travel thing where he's traveling to the end of the universe and the, the second time he sort of, has this out-of-body experience so he's so kalpas k-a-l-p-a-s nice i also had a candidate which was pertinacity there you go <laughs> i thought pertinacity was a good word and um the i also think the 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 quote where it comes from is great and yet such is the pertinacity of human curiosity that at last my chief desire was but to discover what lay beyond that gloomy entrance. Right. And there's an example of the prose. Lucas is shaking his head. There's an example of the kind of prose you can expect from this book. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, man. And the definition of uh, pertinacity is um, is perversely persistent or go. stubbornly tenacious. Right. And, and you would yet. have to be very pertinacitous. Nevertheless, to, uh, she persisted. Nevertheless, to, 
Exactly. <laughs> um, I think if you came to this book completely cold, you would have to you would have to have a certain amount of pertinacity. <laughs> <laughs> but so, having said that, Lucas, what was your uh, reaction to to this book? This one was weird. Uh, you know, I don't read a lot of horror. I may be not. I, I may not be the target audience for this for that reason, because so much of horror, especially cosmic horror, is that it's real scary, but then nothing happens. <laughs> um, I, I, I loved it for what it was. I loved it for its ambition, uh, for its, for its being the forerunner of a new way of conceiving time and the cosmos but I don't know. I don't think I don't think I would have picked this one up on my own. And if I had, I don't know that I would have finished it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So would you say that you enjoyed reading it or no? The act of reading it, was that enjoyable or not so much? I did. I did. You did? Yeah. And I went through two narrators before, uh, you know, it was the second narrator that I that I encountered before I really enjoyed it, partly because I really love hearing books read out loud, um, especially if then the way you do, Jeff, I can compare it to the to the written word, because there's so much that I can latch on to, even if the book is uh, even if the book drags or is difficult to ne- to connect with by the nature of its prose, there's always if, if there's a narrator, then I can you know at least sympathize with their choices and uh, you know sort of analyze whether this was a, a good way of reading it and try to figure out why this first narrator that I read what like what specifically made that a terrible experience. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I I enjoy I enjoyed it. Um, I think it's it's one of those books that uh, that you read once. Um, I, I very rarely read books twice, and this definitely wouldn't be a candidate for a reread. I don't think, but I don't regret the experience. And uh, one thing I will mention is before we record our episodes, we also have our episodes with our patrons. Our yeah, patron yeah, book yeah. Club. One of our patrons who joined it. This was his sixth time reading it. Really? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Good for yeah. him, so for man. some people, this is a book they go to again right. and again. But I, I'm kind of with you. I really enjoyed reading this, but I don't see myself needing to reread it. Right, right. It's I short enough this... that you could hit it again, and it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't right. break your back. But right, yeah, this was my second time reading it, and I did find that I was more receptive this time than the first time I read it. And that wasn't even that long ago. I would say it was probably about six or seven years ago that the first time I tried to read it. Um, but we have a couple of people. We have another, uh, we had another guest, Peter Biebergall, who was also says he at, at a certain point in his life now where he can't afford to reread a book because he only has so much reading time left. <laughs> so <laughs> he has to go ahead, which also kind of makes sense. There's so much out there. But having said that, um, Lucas, I mean, one of the things that you're known for is talking about monsters, right? And the, the like medium that you work so, on yeah. is a little more. <laughs> Uh, monsters, or at least in your work, maybe not so much your guests, are sort of more naturalistic. There's, as you say, there's natural history, there's an ecology to them. Here we have the swine things, which are <sighs> yeah. kind of out of context, right? They're out of context <laughs> creatures, right? There, there's no ecology to these things as far mm-hmm, as we can yeah. tell, right? So what did you, yeah, what did you think of these things? Uh, anytime I see, uh, well, first of all, it's important to realize that every that most monsters are some combination of some thing of some things. Uh, you know, you can like one section of monster theory is just that these are two things that do not belong together. 
and we have put them together, and that's what makes it weird and frightening and unnerving. In this case, uh, it is a swine man, a swine, a pig person. Those are mm-hmm. these are two different things, and now we have and that's what a monster is. Um, and so, yeah, on the face of it, this is like this is a solid, workable monster. Uh, we could make a B movie out of this. Uh, I could make a stat block for this. Yeah, Attack of the Pigmen. Right? You know, that would play. But the problem is ah, just Pigmen specifically is like such it's it's such a problem. Um, you know, have we done? I can't believe we're doing this already. Have we done the Lovecraft protocol yet? What do you mean by the Lovecraft protocol? I have a thing on my show when, and it happens one out of every three episodes. Somebody mentions Lovecraft and I have to okay. I, like, I have to stop the show. I'm like, all right, there are some things that now we have to say, Lovecraft, terrible person, huge, bad racist. And now we can move on and talk about the thing. Um, you, a lot of monsters are also mapping features of, uh, shall we say exotic, um, cultures or races onto, uh, more familiar things um, as a way of sort of expressing how they're different uh, and in some cases how they're less than orcs right, or being other, a pretty othering right yeah the the enemy other um, uh, orcs are a prime example of this a lot has been written about the orc and the goblin and uh, where they fit in sort of the the history of race relations um, because only because of that like pigs pigs tend to be a red flag like if you see a wolf or a fox or uh, or a dog person as in the case of the cynocephaloi uh, in pliny's natural history yeah kind of they usually don't come with this inherent pretext of being this inherent subtext of being less than um mm-hmm. or subhuman usually when you have a pig in the mix that that kind of comes with it. So there were some alarm bells in my head. Like, why is it a pig person? Who is this a stand in for? And I have to credit William Hope, Hodge, William Hope Hodgson for not really mapping that directly onto anything or anyone or yeah. anybody. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Cause I was not picking up. I mean, I, a lot of this stuff has a lot of very obvious <laughs> yeah. racist. Yeah, it's not even subtext; it's just text. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. But with this, I wasn't reading into. I wasn't reading that into this at all. Yeah, which was weird because, like, and that's that's why I said like warning bells because I'm I was bracing for it and it never happened. Um, yeah. So good for him. Good for you for not being racist. <laughs> right. You get the not racist award. Right. I mean, uh, um, <laughs> you know, I was saying again in the uh, book club, I can't find this. I couldn't find a citation for this in time for the show. But Hodgson was a uh, son of an Anglican priest uh, who was, I guess, uh, got rotated a lot from these different parishes. So he was grew up in like 11 different households before by the time he was a teenager. But apparently one particular summer, he had some particularly bad experience with hogs or something like that. And so that. Oh, the hogs yeah. show up in some other one of his other stories <laughs> famous horror stories apparently uh, he has a book called the hog the hog it's a short <laughs> story that was published uh you know in the uh by august Derleth in the 1940s uh, which is also kind of creepy there's a basically uh a, 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 an otherworldly entity that manifests as the head of this giant hog like Ooh. traveling through time back to them so so yeah so he's mapped yeah. the features of a pig onto this sort of uh subconscious villainous monstrous perception of a pig right awesome something (laughs) and and it literally i mean oh it's such a sigh of relief 
and it, and it literally comes out of the basement of his subconscious, right? It's through the cellar, you know, the second yeah. time the fake creature, you know, it comes out of the the the, the flooded cellar. Um, but I, I think, Lucas, I think you're right. I think oftentimes a lot of the writers, especially of that era, were using monsters as a stand-in for tribal people. Where with this, it sounds like the 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 the, the swine beasts, the swine folk, were stand-ins for pigs. Yeah, pigs are, <laughs> like, how, least... how can I make pigs even scarier? <laughs> yeah. Make them kind of like people with weapons. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, how do I make the thing even of, uh, scarier? I push it yeah. into a realm that it doesn't belong in. It's yeah. a transgressive context, but uh, right. but yeah, it is. Oh, this is ah oh, again such a sigh of relief. It's just a big scary pig. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, a question that I have for you is: um, so we've got the si- the character of the sister. Mm-hmm, yeah, and the sister, they're kind of estranged. Like, yes, they live in the same house, but they almost never talk to each other. She's kind of the housekeeper too, but like, there's not a lot of interaction between the two of them. And there is this big, full-on Night of the Living Dead assault on Precinct 13 attack on their home (laughs) by the swine folk. And his sister's not really around for this. And he's like shooting swine folk out the window with his rifles. He's got a horse pistol. I don't even know what that is. (laughs) And he's like knocking over pieces of mortar onto them. But the next day, there's nobodies anywhere. And his sister is afraid of him. Which I just thought was really interesting. Yeah. Like, here we have this character. I think the I think the entire purpose of the sister character is to have is to have this person there as a semi witness to show us that his experience of what's happening may not be accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Her the, hers her reaction establishes the the recluse capital R. Uh, which is how, you know, sort of the literature, I guess, since this novel refers to its protagonist. Uh, does he deserve that term? Um, there how about our main character? Yeah, there we'll go are. with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hero insofar as he goes through the structure of a story. Uh, protagonist, maybe not so much. Definitely not monster or villain. Um but yeah, she's she casts doubt on that. And already, you know, this book is a, is a framed narrative. Um it's and it's three levels deep. So we encounter we are first introduced by the to this story by William Hope Hodgson himself saying, like, I found this and I'm presenting it to you. And then the story he tells is of two dudes on a two week fishing trip in Ireland, which like when was the last time anybody spent two weeks like backpacking that's awesome right already these guys are real cool (laughs) and then they find the manuscript so we're already three levels deep into this narrative so for him to we have we have three different frames here so for him to add this element of it being an unreliable narrator really puts you in this space while you're reading it of like what what how much of this am i supposed to take as true and am i supposed to Mm -hmm. like this guy like what i don't know is the sister's reaction completely natural to a guy who's showing evidence of delusions of paranoia? Um, or is she not cottoning on to the uncanny that's happening there? That is, you know, I want it to be the first one. We want it to be the first one too, but then the narrator says, we, like, don't we, we don't know because pepper pepper doesn't, you know, when he returns from his trip to the far ends of the universe, pepper is gone, right? It's still a pile of dust. The dog, yeah. Right? Which but is she's sort of, not. which is sort of yeah. the the question mark at the back of the end, you know, like the yeah. villain's dead or is he? 
Um, this is this very horror trope of like, it may not be the way that you thought, or we made it, but did we, it's like how after the, the day after the assault, there, there are no bodies around, there's no blood anywhere, but the pieces of mortar that he knocked over are still broken. And he does notice some scratches on some, some of the doors. Mm -hmm. And then we spend like half of the book where he's just kind of floating around through space, witnessing the end of the universe. Yeah. (laughs) that was the part of the book where i was like please something happen um (laughs) what do you mean he was floating around in a bubble that was happening yeah i don't know (laughs) i mean i i thought though the the actual depiction i mean you have to kind of let yourself i do yeah 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 but the depiction of the time travel as like you know he sees the sun mm -hmm. just traveling so rapidly it just becomes ultimately this blur and glow yeah if you're not into it then it becomes like 20 pages of just kind of like repetitive <laughs> prose. But nah. if you if you if you surrender to it, you're like, "Oh, wow." You know. I think if I had done if I had read this without the audiobook accompaniment, those parts would have been way harder for me. Uh the way that um what is his name again? Ian the way that Ian Gordon was reading those parts, just like I was I was very much like the word that kept coming up in the patron book club was somnolent. Um, and oh, I was yeah. very much like on this like somnolent journey, just kind of floating through this kind of dreamscape. Like I, I, I was feeling it. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, and it's it's not to say that was act- it was my favorite part of the book. I kept waiting for something to happen, but it was my I, I think it was my favorite part because you know with the with the pigmen, it was sort of this uh, very campfire story um, conceit where like did it happen? Yeah. Uh, but you know the 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 vision, the travel that he, that he took was, was honest unto itself. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it didn't pretend to be more or less than it was. And I think that like this being the border between Gothic fiction and cosmic horror, like that section I would argue is probably the most historically important. Like he, he may have been one of the first people to conceive of the cosmos in that way, um, of, uh, of what's known as deep time or geological time, uh, mm-hmm. time on a scale so grand and vast that our own insignificance becomes threatening to our sanity. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, literally he's standing there and he's like, Oh, this, this thing perceptually was a few seconds, but some uncounted age of, you know, this, this blur going through. And it's, it's the fact that it's also not co- moving at a constant rate. It, it, it accelerates, mm-hmm. right. Pushing through it. And like mm-hmm. we're basically wishing, wishing, uh, witnessing like the heat death of the universe, right? And yeah. red shift and all these other things like that going on at the same time too, right? But then also for as beautiful as those things were, there were some, I thought, some pretty campy moments as well. <laughs> like, for example, the part that was kind of cracking me up and I was laughing in a way that I don't think the writer was intending for me to be thinking was funny, was at the the very end of the manuscript, where he is apparently sitting in his room, writing down the words, hush, I hear something down, down in the cellars. It is a creaking sound. My God, it is the opening of a great of the great oak trap. What can be doing that? The scratching of my pen deafens me. I must listen. There are steps on the stairs, strange padding steps that come up and nearer. Jesus, be merciful to me, an old man. There is something fumbling at the door handle. Oh, God, help me now. Jesus, the door is opening slowly. Something. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end of the manuscript. And I'm just like, oh, my God. (laughs) That's so ridiculous. I love it. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was the one point where I had to be like, all right, this is this is the point on which I suspend my disbelief because, it, you know, it was very drums in the deep, but also it's it was pretty indicative of this kind of prose. Like there wasn't, yeah. you know, we didn't have the conception of a camera in the room to rely on. Yeah. You know, really the mm-hmm. only way, like it was accepted in the mind of the reader that the only way you would know about what was happening in this room was if someone had written it down. Um, you know, we didn't right, even, right. I forget when the phonograph was invented, but, you know, the concept of a broadly democratized audio recording equipment was just as alien to this to this man as a as the pig thing would have been. So and right, it, right. it reminds me a bit of uh, Silver Age comics, uh, you know, sort of the dime Marvel issues where um, the heroes would like narrate everything that they were doing. Or uh, yes. or old Superman radio dramas where he would go like down right. down and it's right. like, yeah yeah okay it, it's it's almost like this is the mechanism by which the story has to be told and I have to right. be okay with that as a reader even though every fiber of my being is screaming get up and yes. <laughs> stop writing this down. It's like- it's like with found footage horror movies. Right, right. Yeah. There's always a point in the found footage horror movie where you're just like, put down the camera and run away. <laughs> like, why are you still holding on to this camera? Right. You know, so part of it is like if you have this this right. device that you're trying to use, you have to find a way, you have to find some reason for the main character to stick with that. Cause otherwise we 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 don't have that found footage right. and we don't have that part of the manuscript. But for our story, we need to have it. Right. So we have to have that willing suspension of this belief and actually look as you point out something kind of interesting also which is kind of maybe orthogonal to this discussion but every medium sort of has to recapitulate the previous medium until it finds its own language right so Ooh. um you know Ooh. so you had like you know the <laughs> well, like could you say that again i like it very much yeah, well, every, you know every creative medium so like if you were talking about like so the superman thing they had that they had to do it like a radio play because, you know, TV, you know, even the original Superman TV series in the 50s, they still had that narration. Because yeah. they're kind of recapit- recapitulating radio until TV found its own visual language to be mm-hmm. able to tell the story. Right. And in fact, to this day, a lot of TV is really much a background medium, even though it has visuals. Because you can tell a lot of times, especially on sort of like network shows, you could turn your head and not listen to, not see a sitcom and still know exactly what's going yep. on. Right. Some of like the more cinematic you know, channels like HBO or something like that you want to watch, but you don't really care. You don't really need to watch, you know, yeah. uh, a, you know, a typical CBS sitcom, right? <laughs> um, and so comics, I think maybe also, as you were saying, it's, it's recapitulating the written word, but comics is a visual medium, right? And now yeah. we have much more sort of uncompressed comics, which are more like through the influence of manga and all these other things. That it's just purely, almost purely visual as opposed to having a lot of text going on in there. Um, and so in this case, we're talking about as you said, they didn't have modern recording devices, whether it was a personal phonograph or, uh, you know, still cameras. So we have to rely on this literally a handwritten manuscript that's discovered, right, by these characters in 1908, which probably this story probably takes place in the mid 1800s, 1850, 1840, because the manuscript's already ancient by the time they find it. You know, so um, as you're talking about, it creates those layers of both the medium and layers in time and other frames and other levels of unreliability are getting injected into the story, which I think is kind of fascinating. It's almost metafiction, right? Well, the manuscript's even older than that because um, our main characters find somebody in the fishing village right. who is an old, old person who when he w- remembers when he was a child, right. 
hearing stories about this thing that had happened a long time right. ago. Because although this is an Irish peasant, so it could be mileage and not. <laughs> <laughs> but i'm saying you're right right, right. but But no transitioning this over to the gaming side of the conversation i want to give a shout out to a um to a metal magazine called lurker magazine l-u-r-k-e-r in lurker magazine issue two they released a one person house on the borderland single player board game and uh, it's available on PDF as well. And it looks really cool. And the art is gorgeous, <laughs> like absolutely stunning wow. artwork. And it looks like a very fun game. So if anybody's listening to this and is interested in checking out this one person board game, it's Lurker Magazine and uh, you can buy a PDF of it. Uh, it's very, very cool. But I'm curious, Lucas, while you were reading House on the Borderland, was your was your game designer brain going off? Was your 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 monster um, <laughs> your your monster loving brain going off? Yeah, the the conceit of this of this novel is is so very similar to the conceit of some of the fundamental design principles of tabletop role playing games and Dungeons and Dragons specifically. I mean, this is. Um, being as it is sort of a descendant of gothic horror and like the transition to cosmic horror, gothic horror, as I understand it, is like a horror of place, um, uh, a horror of, you know, that we don't need an agent uh, to inflict the horror on us. Like the, the place in which we are is scary enough. That was a very gothic horror thing. Um, and then we have Dungeons and Dragons, which is half about the dungeon. Uh, mm-hmm. Like the the dungeon in in early ed- editions of the game, all it was was someone has left something very powerful and very valuable at the bottom of a thing full of booby traps. Go get it, uh, and then sell it and make a bunch of money, and then do it again. And that was like the yes. that was the gameplay loop of D anD. d So the dungeon uh, was both. You know, the dungeon could be any one of a number of things, including the dungeon is the presence of the designer. And in fact, uh, in when kind of in the earlier editions of the game, you would run so-and-so's dungeon. Um, I think the most contemporary example would be like the dungeon of Drezar, uh, which is a, a dungeon built shelf by shelf into the the shelves of a dresser. Um you know, full on, but and so like that that dresser itself would tour tour around to conventions and usually with a big um, corkboard above it, where with all of the character sheets of the the characters who had died traversing this dungeon, and it wasn't like you would the way we as players would now work so much on our characters. Um, it was expected that you would work that much on your dungeon as a game master, um, mm-hmm. like fill it with booby traps and things that you would spot and you would run through it over and over again. Um, so there's that. And also the, that the dungeon or the house itself becomes, and maybe because of that, it becomes the opposing force like monster and antagonist are two separate things, um, mm-hmm. in a story antagonist is anything that op- opposes the protagonist whether in the real or in the symbolic order or both uh a monster is just like a thing um so it's 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 an it's an agent 
uh, a separate like creature or, or agent within the story. So for this to be the house on the borderland and for, for it to have so much of what is weird and strange and occultish and uh, antagonistic about this story come from the house itself is really, really important and really, really pivotal pivotal to the ways that tabletop gaming's design, tabletop games and D&D specifically, were designed from the get-go in the 60s and 70s. Now, it's interesting because you said this, but the house also has a weird function in the book because it's also the shelter, right? And it's yeah. not just the bad place, right? Because it's 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 being in the house, you know, even when they see the sort of, the sort of uh, projection of the house in the arena of the gods, right? He knows he sees this the sort of the Ur version of this cosmic pig sort of like poking around, climbing around the house. And he knows if it does get in, then he's done for, right? Yeah. So it's a weird thing because he's in the bad place or he's directly connected to the bad place. But if he also leaves, he's maybe even worse off, right? So he, he you know, it's a weird thing where he's kind of stuck in this loop. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's bon- it's bonkers. Because usually we want, like if I were designing if I were to design a one-shot adventure around House on the Borderland, it wouldn't, I don't know that I would, I probably would have to take it along like the the zombie apocalypse route. Like they're going to get in and you got to stop them, but I wouldn't want to, you know? Um, I would want it to be like, this is, the house is spooky. There's a trap door in the cellar that leads to a cavernous pit fathoms deep. And, uh, you know, that's what I want you to, 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 to to explore and to be to encounter or to be opposed by um so yeah the house in this story is weird it's both it's both shelter and antagonist what i think what 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 i was thinking while i was reading it that i thought would be a really fun conceit for a game is your adventurers enter into this big spooky house right Mm -hmm. and you find the cellar with the with the door to the unfathomable pit or whatever but you also find this 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 diary, this journal, this manuscript, whatever. And when your PCs open it up to start reading it to find out what's inside, sure, this can be block text that I then read back to them, or I can read them the general gist of it, or I can now hand them a bunch of characters and they can now play the people who previously lived in this home and they can experience firsthand the things that had happened in the past and the things that they do are going to determine what it, what, what's happening in that, in that world now. Ooh, I like that very much. I think that much. could be really fun. I cannot mm-hmm. imagine how I would make that work. Uh, if I like, I could do that if it were just me and it were just like four people who were running that. But if I had to package that into a PDF that someone else could read and use, <laughs> like I don't know how I would do it. This would almost be something that I would have to tell another DM like at a convention somewhere. Like this is a really cool idea. Um, or, or, you know, like the false Hydra that sort of, you know, that's not a written adventure. It's just a, a creature encounter, but it doesn't have like a stat block or, or subheadings or, um, you know, uh, a block section called role playing the the hydra no it's just it's just an idea that you have to give to people and i i hear a lot of those like the amnesia one shot where you start and uh you start the adventure with blank character sheets and your your players have to fill and that you in. roll up your stats as like a, as they become applicable well they already exist that's the point it's like you don't roll them you have to discover them uh, exactly <laughs> So yeah, the but, players are rolling it, but you're discovering you're, you're discovering it by rolling it. Yeah, 
and I, by playing it. Right. And I couldn't write that down exactly in exactly the same way that I couldn't write like you got to you got to play that you got to be the flashback. Um, but I would yeah. love to try it. It's been a similar vein. So again, we were talking about monsters and uh, effects. So um, seems like it's important for at least a lot of your work that the monsters have some sort of um, reason for doing whatever it is they're doing. Right. Um, whether it's naturalistic or not. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, here we don't really know. There just seem to be antithetical to life. <laughs> yeah. Anti-creation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Is that something you can work with? Or is that just to like, I mean, I'm not talking about like, Oh, and, and they attack, right. It's, 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 it's deeper than that. Right? Yeah. And it, yeah. Yeah. I is that think, something you can work with though? I think it is. And, uh, yeah. I resisted this for a long time because the conceit of my of my podcast was that every monster tells a story. Every monster is a package of uh, ethics and morality and the way we tell truths to each other over time. And a lot of the designers that I talked to were like, yeah, I just wanted to give the players something to smash. Uh, and I like using robots for that because we don't have to ask questions about them. Goblins are the same way, and that's why I hate goblins. Um, they're nothing. Yeah. They're they're XP they're XP bags um, that you hit and they explode into coins. Um, so I I don't like monsters that are that way, but I keep running into them, and it tells me that they have to be like there has to be a narrative function for the thing that is just like it's a big thing and it's going to get you and you have to stop it and i wonder if that's like i wonder if that's a result of maybe the first level of super mario brothers uh where the mushroom like it opens and the you are you know we don't have a we don't have an instruction manual for this you turn on the nes and there's a goomba coming at you and uh you have to jump on it so i wonder if the I wonder what. I wonder how William Hope Hodgson, Hodgson used this same idea. Like, what's the, what's the line between Swine Thing in 1907 and Goomba in 1980, um, where this is the sort of unnamed antagonist for antagonist's sake? Right. I mean, as near as I can come, it is sort of the eruptions of the. Uh, you know, the unnatural, purely unnatural into the physical or natural world in this case. And it just happens to take the form of a pig. It's not really a pig. It's not really a man. Yeah, it could have been anything. Right. Um, at least that's not as regressive. I find that, uh, you know, I used to like zombie movies, but I find that zombies are increasingly sort of regressive. It's like, it's really about a movie about people wanting to be able to just kill people, but like they can't really kill people so they can kill zombies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's why when you're talking about um, goblins just being things that you hit and then they explode into gold pieces, I, I feel the same way, which is why whenever I am running, um, whenever I'm running D&D modules that have a bunch of goblins or hobgoblins or orcs or whatever, they're always bandits. They're always humans. And when I run them, hmm. because they're that that to me is more interesting. Um Having said that, okay, Lucas is pondering. I don't want to step on you. <laughs> well, yeah. the, the reason well, why yeah. I find that yeah. more interesting is because yeah. there it, it's no longer morally clear. For some yeah. reason, like in D and D, like oh, it's a goblin. I can just kill it and right. not think about it. But right. now that this is another person who is maybe ideologically different than you or not, who is um, who is currently in possession of this dungeon and it's your job to gain possession of this dungeon. It's now suddenly a little less clear, like, Oh, what, what, what's okay for me to be doing here? Right. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is, I've tried this ground a lot and I'm never sure where I land on this because at some point, you know, your, um, 
your bandits could fulfill exactly the same role as the goblins do, which is um, XP factory, like hit them and they explode and you get better. Uh, mm-hmm. And I really think like maybe it just maybe it depends on going back to that idea of like the the point on which we have to suspend our disbelief or the the function of the the medium within the story. Um, you know, do we accept that goblins are uh, uh, morally clear or morally blank and we can hit them and they turn into experience points? Is that a function of the game? Like, do we have to have that because that's the way the game works? Um, and then does do D&D players reject that en masse because that is not necessarily the way that D&D works? And do you get credit for rejecting that or like shooting for more of a morally um, uh, nuanced game just right. because you want a morally nuanced game? Um, right. I mean, that's a big discussion, right? What, what do orcs signify right. and all the stuff like that? <laughs> yeah. right? Now, but the interesting thing is that old school games sometimes get a bad rap, what we call by old school. I mean, like first edition of Dungeons and Dragons, right. second edition going backwards. Which keep in but, mind was no earlier than 1974. <laughs> right. Of course. Um, so not really ancient in the, in the course <laughs> of our culture. Certainly but, not on a geological perspective. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think maybe one thing that people are, who play fifth edition who are having these problems or, you know, more recent editions who are having these problems with like, you know, as the, you know, the ethics of killing monsters for, you know, decrease my personal power is that in the old school games, it's actually somewhat decoupled, right? Because you get far more experience points from looting the dungeon than actually killing the monster. Yeah, so the gold you, itself was was turned almost yeah. one for one into experience points. Right. Yeah, it was one for one for yeah. depending on the system, but right. yeah, usually. And so then that actually sort of disguises what people think is this traditional gameplay loop of you know going in and bashing the monster. No, it's really not that. It's about descending into this mythic, weird other space underworld and returning alive mm-hmm. with something to show for it. Well, and part of it then becomes um, if so initially, if we're if you're gaining XP by looting gold, then that just means the richer you are, the more powerful right. you are, which is also its own weird thing. Yeah. But then the monopoly the principle of that is <laughs> exactly. And then the, but then now what we're doing is you murder things to get gold, which are uh, to get XP rather. So you get more powerful through murder. Right. <laughs> which yeah. Is maybe even more problematic. Right, right. Um, but yeah. Yes. I mean, the, yeah. I mean, if you take the gold literally, obviously it's a problem, but it's not, make, it's not as big a problem as killing people. Yeah. I think, but I guess what I, I think, yeah. I guess so what ahead, I want please. people to, to come away from that with is that it's really not about um, what the thing uh, what the thing signifies or whether this is capitalism, the game, or whether this is colonialism, the game, um, because any game can be anything depending on how you at the table play it. And if you have a bunch of players who don't want a morally nuanced game and they want a game where you hit, where you jump on the Goomba and it gives you a coin or you hit the goblin and it gives you experience points, then that's the game that you need to be playing in in the yeah. same way that this is like I agree. you can't you can't yell at the protagonist for getting up for for staying at the book and writing out the words because that is the <laughs> thing that you are reading you know right yes um, yes so yeah right you I, can participate or not participate right, but you yeah. can't like uh, exactly uh, you know it is uh, it is extremely important that you not think that your D and D 
uh, is 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 elevated above another D and D because it is a certain kind of D and D. I think the only thing that elevates I agree. a D and D experience um, morally, ethically, uh, from a storytelling perspective, above any other kind of D and D, is how did it go for the people at the table? Like, did this game carry your message, and did the people who were playing received it, and was that what they were looking for? Did it did it impact them in a meaningful way? So, yeah, that's a we we're a long way from pig people. I think. <laughs> well, I mean, but yeah. with, I mean, they're the, that's the symbolic value, right? They're again, they're erupting from our unconscious basement cavern through the trapdoor <laughs> and bringing all this other stuff with it. Right. Now, are there any uh, projects that you're working on that you want people to know about uh, by the time the show drops, which will be in February? Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing that I want people to know about is uh, Book of Extinction. Um, and we've talked about uh, the 1800s and the beginning of natural history. Um, we've talked about natural history itself as kind of a uh, an important influence in the way that monsters were made. Uh, and uh, by extension, tabletop games. So um, what I've done is taken animals that have faced anthropogenic extinction. So animals that within living memory, in most cases, since we started taking pictures, uh, have gone extinct. Uh, and I've turned them into Dungeons and Dragons monsters. It's really important to me that people realize that if we don't have a vibrant and vivid natural world, we are not going to have vibrant and vivid fantasy anything because they're the same. Um, and we are living in a very critical time for that to be protected. Vertebrate populations have declined on average by 68% since 1970. Uh, extinction rates are now something like a thousand times the background rate. Um, we're in what is commonly known as the sixth mass extinction. Uh, there has never been uh, extinction on a scale like this, but for five times in the history of the world. Uh, so the best thing that I thought I could do for people was to put those stories in a book and say, hey, this is what is slipping away from us. These are the stories that uh, that you're going to miss and that you may have missed by a generation or less. Um, mm -hmm. And more to the point, this is how you can kind of uh, turn them into a D&D &D monster. So on one side, we've got the, you know, things like the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger, the great auk, the passenger pigeon, um, as they really were. And then on the face of that, it would be, uh, here's a magical creature sort of fit to live in the forgotten realms where magic is a selective pressure. Um, the preview of that is out now and will be out in February until we kickstart the thing in September. And uh, everything that you pay for that, we're not keeping anything, it's pay what you want. Um, and everything that we raise through that will be donated to the Center for Biological Diversity, which is a U.S.-based advocacy program or uh U.S.-based advocacy organization that uh, works to preserve endangered species, habitat, and biodiversity. That sounds like a really awesome project. I really look forward to it becoming, uh, following it as it continues. Thank you. So It's my heart and soul. And I'm, uh, I'm not ashamed to say it. Right. And Lucas, where can people find you and your other works? Yeah. online or otherwise yeah. the online home for everything i do is scintilla.studio that's s-c-i-n-t-i-l-l-a dot studio um, there's a lot on there about you know some graphic design projects that i've done some music that i've made but most importantly uh the making a monster podcast uh at scintilla.studio slash monster and book of extinction at scintilla.studio slash extinction 
And uh, for people who want to find us, we're appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. If you want to drop us a note and let us know what you think. We're also on Twitter at appendix underscore n. If you like this show, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Well, speaking of if you like this show, (laughs) if you like this show, please head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club and show us your support. It means the world to us. Um, In addition to just showing us your support, you also get some some um, some fun perks as well. Members of our patron um, of our of our Patreon are able to join us for our patron book clubs. Uh, today, we had a few of our patrons join us. We were joined by Rick Byrne, uh, Robert Coleman, Brandon Cruz, Rob Poyton, and Adam Stiers. Uh, in addition to those who joined us, I would also love to give a shout out to a handful of our patrons as well. Thank you to Corey Sepalak, Matt Hildebrand, Eric Biritz, Eric Halstrom, Sean Birch, Derek Varn, Michael Ben. Robbie Fioto and Ian Little, we really appreciate your support. In addition to joining us for the patron book clubs, our patrons are also able to vote on which books we are covering. And our patron, our patrons have made their voice heard. And for episode 118, we will be covering Peter Biebergall's Appendix N, The Eldritch Roots of Dungeons and Dragons, a very cool collection of stories that were both in the Appendix N and some tense gentle stories as well for similar, similar authors of the time. Um, now, normally we would also be announcing a poll as well for the next poll that we're going to be posting. But Hoy and I have decided to make an executive decision. And for episode 122, we are not going to have a poll. We're just going to be covering E.R. Edison's The Worm or Boris, which we're excited to cover. But specifically, the reason we're not doing a poll for that one is we have the possibility of having a very cool guest specifically for that book. So we are trying to make this happen, and we're very excited about what may be around the corner. Um, So more information to come. But yes, TLDR... Go to our Patreon and support us. Thank you so much, Lucas. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yes, thanks for joining it's us. It's been my All pleasure right. as well. And I, hey, I want to say um, the reason I was really excited to be on the show is you guys are doing a really cool thing. Um, there, there's a level of archaeology to what you're doing as well, um, kind of digging into what made D&D what it is. And for us to, to have a space to have like a reasoned, thorough discussion of how we got here is um, it's the heart and soul of making a monster and to see other people doing that with with literature and especially the literature that the book is telling you to read is really cool. <laughs> uh, and I'm really glad you guys are doing this. So thanks for having me. Oh, thank awesome. you so much. Thank you. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.